Hey, welcome back to Dear Baseball Gods. Today we've got a great guest, former teammate of mine, great friend of mine, former major leaguer, Zach Clark. So I'm going to give you a little bit about Zach's uh, backstory. So number one, 10 years of pro baseball experience uh, with a brief stint in the majors with the Orioles. He has a lifetime 4.33 ERA, over 1,001 innings pitched. Um, Zach's done time at every level of the minors, but spent a combined uh, five different seasons in AAA. Um, six was in AA for parts of six different seasons. And like I said, brief stint in the major with the Orioles. So one of the interesting things about the story of Zach, and not just Zach, but Zach and myself, is how we were kind of intertwined. So we both attended the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, also known as UMBC. Zach was kind of on his way out. He was a couple years older than I was. And he and I kept in touch over the years. And he and I ended up being the only two UMBC guys in pro ball for the duration of our two careers. And it was interesting to see Zach's rise to the very pinnacle of baseball as I was still fighting and, and trying to, to come into my own as well. So, And then at the tail end of it, Zach converted to a knuckleball pitcher. So he had always been one of those guys who played catch on the sidelines and throw you this terrifying knuckleball that takes a left turn and almost hits you in the face. And he uh, he's going to explain later in our, our, our two-part episode here how that conversion came about, how one day he was approached and they said, look, this is what we think we want you to do. Are you interested in doing it? So it was a really fascinating journey of his from you know a, a non-drafted free agent agent all the way up to the major leagues, his conversion to a knuckleballer, his brief stint in indie ball after that, and now his transition out. And then he's uh, doing full-time scouting with the uh, Tampa Bay Rays. Hey, what's up, Zach? How's uh, everything out there in Jersey? It's good, man. Jersey gets a bad rap. Everyone thinks it's all just like fist pumping and, and beaches and I guess like tanning oil. But Princeton is just like one of the most gorgeous areas, like that whole like is it, what do they what they call it? Is it like Central Jersey? Like where you live? Because you're, you're close to Princeton, right? Yeah, I, I'm still trying to figure it out. Like I consider it Central Jersey, but people in South Jersey, which is closer to Philly, that area, seem to it's it kind of gets lost. It's like North South Jersey and South Central Jersey. But less less lost than Delaware, where you're originally from. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No North yeah, Delaware Jersey, is. Jersey definitely gets a bad a bad rap because people just think of like you know off the turnpike, but there's you know all North Jersey's like forest and you know South Jersey's like kind of farmy. But you grew up in Delaware, right? So like, tell us about Delaware. You have what crabs and some beaches, and it's like the size of a shopping mall. Yeah, it's pretty. I mean, it's it's small. University of Delaware is like where I grew up, like in that area, uh, Newark, Delaware. And, you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how much people know about Delaware, but it's not very big. And uh, there are beaches and, you know, you're close to some major cities. So that's cool. Yeah. So the story between Zach and I, uh, we were teammates at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Um, Zach was three years older than I was. So when I was a snot-nosed freshman, you were a senior, but not a super senior. So you were a redshirt junior. Um, or yeah, redshirt junior. And you and I kind of connected at first just because you're rehabbing your labrum. I was just wanting a throwing partner in the winter and a lot of our teammates, you know, were spread out. So they'd go home over the break and they'd go home on off days and all that sort of stuff. So I was always just looking for someone else to throw with, and you were always looking for somebody else to throw with. Um, and that was kind of how Zach and I started out as, as catch partners. And for me, you know, I had a lot of different mentors in my career and Zach was one of them because he was just this older 
upperclassmen that I looked up to. And I was just this kind of scared kid who wanted to be better than he was. And, you know, the first thing I learned from you was your process. So like we barely even spoke when we played catch, you know, you went through your mechanics, every throw you made to me had a purpose. And like, we never really talked about it, but you know, like it was just something clear that you exuded, you know, the professionalism and, and just like the method. So like, where did you, where did you learn that as a kid when you're growing up in baseball? Uh, well, I don't know if I, I don't know where it clicked, but I kind of found myself as a pitcher in college and that was my second surgery. That was my second shoulder surgery. So I had had enough practice going through it the first time and I uh, maybe wasn't as diligent with my rehab and I didn't have a throwing partner and all that stuff. So I just kind of took what I learned from that and took what I learned from coaches I played for. And, you know, when Jay Watasik would come back, he would talk about throwing with a purpose and uh, Bobby St. Pierre would help me uh, when I played for him with Silver Spring. And just any like I tried to take everything that I could from anybody I could and apply it to myself. And that was one of the things I noticed that when guys would play catch, they didn't they didn't it wasn't just they're up there throwing there. They were doing it with a purpose. And I I mean, I didn't even I didn't think too much about it. I just tried to throw the ball where I wanted to. Yeah. And looking back on it, I don't know that anyone ever like had that conversation with me. Um, I don't have a lot of like childhood memories personally about you know, like how I was taught to pitch as a kid. I know that I learned the wind up one day, like our whole team went over one of our coaches houses and we learned it in the, in the living room. But you know, like as far as all the other instruction, I don't remember much of it. And I, I don't remember getting taught like a process, like this is how you're supposed to warm up. Like this is what you do to get better when you're just playing catch. Like did anyone ever, ever, ever really teach you that? I mean, did you learn that in, you know, your first year in college, was it in, in high school? Like, or did it really not sink in until, like you said, your, your rehab? Well, my dad, all, I mean, I grew up playing catch with my dad and he was always, I mean, he loved baseball and we bonded over baseball. So we were, we were always talking about baseball and I don't know if we necessarily talked about preparation. I'm sure we did at some point, like, you know, we'd, we'd be watching stuff and he'd point out like, you know, oh, we're watching the Orioles and Scott Erickson is getting beat. And he's like, you know, he's the best. These, these guys are the best. It wasn't always Scott Erickson. It could have been Mike Mussina or, you know, maybe we were watching Roger Clemens on TV or somebody. And he would always just kind of point out like, these guys are the best and they still go through ups and downs or whatever. So I mean, that kind of went into the process a little bit. Um, but you know, we watch guys warm up and watch guys long toss. And, um, I think as I got more experience playing, my process got better because I became more focused on what I was trying to do. You know, you go out in little league, you just try and throw strikes. I remember people saying like, Oh, remember how you did that and do it again. And it got, it just got more and more, um, you know, intricate after you know, more than just repeating your mechanics and throwing strikes and, uh, college definitely helped me zone in a little bit. You know, you see where you can, what you can get away with, what you can't. And then you just, you know, try and find ways to beat dudes, whether it's learning new pitches or, you know, with location or movement or whatever it is. So I think it was just kind of like an ever evolving process. You know, what, what were you as a kid? So, your end product, you know, you made it to the top, you made it to the major leagues. 
what were you like as a little kid? So like, take us back through the kind of the beginning, like, were you always the best player? Did you, you know, you became a pitcher obviously at your, um, you know, in college and pro ball, but what was Zach Clark like as a little kid and what was your progression, you know, through high school and the recruiting process? Obviously we know where you played in college, but kind of take us back uh, to the beginning of a, a major league career. Well, as a kid, I loved baseball. I mean, I, I love baseball now, but like, I love to practice. I was always maybe from like nine on. I was an all star, but I wasn't I wouldn't say I was always the best player. I mean, sometimes I was the best player, but I wasn't always the best player. And, you know, maybe like my 12 year old year, I was like one of the better players, but I didn't hit all the home runs in Little League. Um, I had a better arm. But when, you know, in our league, I was one of the harder throwers. And then we go play like other little leagues and all stars and there'd be you know, every team had a guy that threw as hard as I did. So it wasn't, you know, I never felt like I was that good because I was, you know, I'm in Delaware and there's guys that are just as good or better than me all the time. So I just, it kind of made me just want to work hard and practice. And I, I was always throwing. And then in high school I had, I kind of like maybe my sophomore year, I figured out that I was like, I could be, kind of good at pitching because I had I was a sophomore pitching on varsity and beat a a good high school team in the area so I was like oh maybe I could be all right and then I had surgery my junior year of high school so I kind of like you know I started to like climb that ladder and I don't know how hard I was throwing but I was probably throwing like mid 80s and then I got hurt so I came back my senior year and I was I was good I mean I was a good player in high school but you know, it wasn't like major colleges were beating the door down to, to get me to come to their school. Nobody even knew who I was. And, you know, I, I, I could go to the University of Delaware as a like a tuition exchange student. And um, they basically said I could come as a recruited walk on. So I ended up that, you know, I ended up at UMBC um, and then I started to throw, you know, I started to maybe touch 90 once my shoulder was fully healthy and um you know, I, I, I think I was just somebody that loved to practice and it just, and I could see results from practicing. What we're going to circle back to your, uh, your playing career in a second, but now you're a scout. So you've been out of baseball for a couple of years. You had some time with the Astros, which recently ended and now you're at the Rays. So now that you're evaluating all these kids, what patterns do you see? Do like, do kids have the same love of practice that you did it's more of a pitching lesson culture i mean what do you what do you see that's different uh in kids nowadays well i i kind of wish i'd paid attention more to like how guys did things when i was that age because i i'm like learning it now like i'm comparing kids to their peers and it's hard for me to recall like how guys prepared as 17 year olds or 16 year olds whatever or even college guys i can I can remember more clearly like the preparation in college, but specifically the high school kids, you know, that just evaluating a high school kid is, is challenging for me at times because there's one, you're in the Northeast. So guys are, you know, on that, you know, that Northeast time where they're, they may not be able to get outside or, um, you know, they're playing other sports or whatever. So, you only have a small window to see, and I'm talking specifically the pitchers, um, and they only have six or seven starts. So you, you know, you go see a kid, and he's good one time, and then he's not good the other time, and um, 
you know, you can't see nine or seven starts of a kid's high school season. It's just, you know, because there's other kids to see. So it's kind of challenging, I think. And it's something I'm still learning. Yeah, and I know I've, I picked your brain a ton recently about scouting just because, you know, I'm doing similar things where I'm, you know, we have teams and I'm part of the recruiting process for a lot of these kids. And it's just like, dude, what, is, what does a first-round draft pick look like when they're 15? You know, they just like super fast and running around with their heads cut off and they just like smash a ball and then strike out three times. It's, I don't know. Like, I mean, you've been part of the draft for a couple of years now. You've been in the in the room when they're it's all going down. Like how much speculation is involved? I think there's so many misconceptions that I know you've cleared up for me. But what, yeah. what do these kids look like when they get four million dollars as a high school 18 year old? Well, I mean, I think that the money kind of somebody's got to get the money. So, you know, the players are what you got. And I kind of had to learn that, like you only have what you have. So the crop of players that are in a given year, like I may not see all the best players that are in the country. So the guys who have seen them all kind of put them in order to make it easy for people, take the money out of it because you just got to order the guys the way you see them. And then the money kind of falls into place. I'm trying to think a good, guys that i saw that got picked high i mean the guys who get picked high you're like it makes sense you're like oh he you know he's throws really hard he's got good breaking stuff and you know he's probably got like a projectable body or he's you know really big and i mean it's kind of what what you'd expect them to look like i know the astros first rounder last in 2016 Forrest whitley was a huge uh I mean, he's a huge right-handed pitcher from Texas who, you know, if you were to walk up on him, you'd be like, oh, this guy's probably something, you know, basketball, baseball, football. I mean, he's he was big and strong and threw hard, and he had good breaking pitches. So Yeah, just these, like, physical anomalies, these kids that are just grown men when they're, like, 15. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't spend a ton of time watching guys when they're 15. I mean, you may may run across one just because they're on one of the better teams. But I mean, the important thing is that they, you see them when they're put on display for those showcases, you know, the, the major showcases that scouts go to, that's where if you're 15, I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to peak too early, I guess. All right. So I'm going to take us back. So you as a senior, so I was, I guess, a, a sophomore, junior, you got signed uh, by the Orioles. So non-drafted free agent, the Orioles took you, and then you were kind of off. So then I was, you know, one of the older guys back at UMBC um, trying to finish up my career and, and get somewhere, and, and you left, and you're off doing your thing. So we, you know, you and I, like I said, we were kind of like more like acquaintances almost in, in college. You know, we didn't talk a ton. Um, you know, I was in general kind of a quiet kid, didn't hang out a lot after uh, practice, and you're just a good amount older than me, but we reconnected in 2011. So my second year of pro ball. And I remember, uh, I, I remember the conversation because I was getting my absolute brains beat in pitch, uh, pitching for Fargo. And for those of you listening, if you listen to episode 13, where, you know, I was, uh, just not pitching well on this new team, the Fargo Moorhead Redhawks and got embarrassed by my coach, uh, you know, screaming that I was, awful that didn't get a lot better i pitched horrible that whole that whole half season with them and you and i had talked a little bit that off season and we reconnected that year when i was in the middle of my slump and you were slumping too you were i think in double a was that right in 2011 and you were just put on the phantom dl yeah 
So uh, I don't think most people know, like explain what the Phantom DL is and, and why were you there that year? So, well, two, I remember 2011 pretty vividly because it was the only season I played where I was in one with one team the whole year. Um, but okay, so the Phantom DL is basically you're, you're put on the DL for an injury that you don't have. What was your fake injury? I don't know, but it looks like, it, I mean, it's like one that you, I think it was, should have been, I wanted it to be turf toe and they were like, well, put it on for right elbow. And I'm like, no, 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 right elbow. Like, no, let's like make it a, make it a bruised rib or something. Like, I don't know what it ended up being because it didn't matter. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't want to get fake, only, fake uh, shoulder surgery or anything. Yeah. Well, I mean, and they gave me the option. They said, look, we can release you. Or uh, we can put you on the DL because I think Zach Britton was coming down and he obviously needed to get innings. I think he was rehabbing or something or there was some guy that was more important that needed innings and I was doing pretty bad. So let's talk about that. So you played with Jake Arrieta when he was coming up through the Orioles (laughs) system. You played with Zach Britton and you were an organizational guy. So explain to people who don't know what an organizational guy was and what your your kind of role was in the Orioles system. Uh, an organizational guy is a guy who helps the organization out when they're in a bind, whether it's they move around. Well, they can do whatever the team wants, basically. So I moved to a bunch of different levels and basically filled in for guys who were injured or when there were guys going to the big leagues or whenever there was movement and they didn't want to move one of the guys that maybe they had a plan for, I was kind of the guy who temporarily filled in and it ended up helping my career because I, I I eventually, I mean, I don't know if I ever broke the organizational mold, but I at least had people looking at me as more than an organizational pitcher. Like maybe I could help in the big leagues. Maybe I could be, be more than that. Well, cause you see that on guys stats, like, you know, obviously playing independent ball all these years, like we get new players all the time and you look them up and you say, Oh, like, who is this guy? What are his numbers? Like, where'd he come from? How did he do with the, you know, the diamondbacks or the Dodgers or whatever system he was in? And you look at his numbers and there's a lot of guys who are like, you know, year in rookie ball, year in low A, year in high A, then they have like four at bats in triple A. And you're like, what happened there? Um, you know, why did he get one day in triple A or one day in double A? And, uh, but so you did that kind of stuff where they like sent you up and down. You played at every level one year. And, but I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, when you went up there and would pitch in AAA for a couple weeks or in AA for a couple weeks, like you always did pretty well, right? I did okay. Um, I always, you know, there were times where I did well and there were, it, the thing is like the expectation, especially like the first time I went to AAA, I think I pitched five innings. Um, I'd come as a, I was a, like a long reliever and they said, okay, you're going to start. So I went my first start. I think I gave up five runs in five innings or something like that. And I ended up pitching. I think I pitched better than the line, but I still gave up five runs and I think we lost. Um, but I got another start and I pitched six innings, gave up two runs that happened in the first inning. And, and then we ended up, I got my first win in AAA the next start. So it was like, okay. And then I started to think like, Oh, maybe I can like, maybe I'm better than I thought, or maybe I do belong. You know, it's still baseball, you know, even though these guys have been in the big leagues. Um, 
But the the role of the organizational guy is just you're, you're pretty much a guy who may be light on tools, but throws strikes, gives teams a chance to win. Um, you know, you're usually missing like the the dominant stuff that a prospect would have, but you may have some field of pitch or, you know, the ability to change speeds or whatever. And it's just not quite at the tier that the prospects have. Or, you know, or it could be like a combination of all those and your age, which I kind of had, you know. Yeah, so give us your scouting report. Because I know you gave uh, me your, your scouting report, and it was always pretty honest, and you were the first guy to tell me that I wasn't nearly as, <laughs> nearly as good as I thought I was. <laughs> like, hey, Dan, no, you don't have, you're, no, your, your control's not that good. No, you're very um, fast. I'd say I had, um, you know, I pitched... 88 to 92 and at times i'd pitch a tick higher and at times i'd pitch a tick lower um so i i basically pitched with what was then maybe like a fringy fastball um which would now be like a 40 like just because everybody throws harder Mm -hmm. um so uh but i think my fastball because i had late hard late movement uh my fastball played closer to average and it was a little bit sneaky um, I'd say I had average command, if not maybe a tick better when I was, uh, on my game. Um, and change up and curveball were like average at best, but you know, somewhere fringy ish. Um, and then I had a slider at one point that kind of turned into a cutter. And I think at times that could have been an average pitch as well, but I only threw that for like two years and, um, it really was only good when I had better velo. So, I mean, I was, you know, at best, you know, average across the board, but, you know, probably more below average. Um, but I knew how to pitch. I could change speeds. I was probably, I'd say I was above average, maybe plus pitchability. You know, I, I had to get, I got, I got ground balls. I ate innings. I gave my team a chance to win. I mean, I had to kind of do things and find ways to win. And, you know, I had to pitch down in the zone. I couldn't, I would guess that my fastball had a low spin rate. I relied heavily on a two seamer. I relied a lot on my command. You know, I wasn't really trying to trick guys. I throw a lot of fastballs in fastball counts and more rely on miss hits than, uh, than swing and misses. Well, and so expand on, command versus control because listening to your scouting report people like have no idea how like how good you actually were i mean you spent <laughs> what four seasons in triple a and you what 11 or 12 seasons in pro ball in general i think yeah I don't a lot of years i mean over a decade and um to say that you have average command like I- explain that to people because no one has any idea what that actually means well i think it changes based on what's in the big leagues and i to be honest i i I thought I always had above average command, but when I would ask guys like that had seen a lot of good pitchers, they were like, yeah, you know, you may have average or maybe a tick above if you were feeling it. I remember when I was at my best and we were teammates, uh, you know, you were 32, I was 29 and I was, you know, I, my best season, I had 50 innings and I had, I think 12 walks and I was like feeling myself. I'm like, man, I like... I like don't walk guys. Like I have good command. You're like, no, no, no. You like almost laughed in my you pretty much laughed in my face when I thought that I had command for like even a second. And you're like, no, you have control. Like you have control. You don't walk guys, but 
you don't spot the ball anywhere close to as well as like major league guys do guys who have command so explain the difference between control and command because people don't get what that is okay so in for me control is being able to throw the ball across the plate throwing strikes you know you miss but you may miss for a strike you know you have a general idea where the ball is going command when you start talking and there's great i mean you know you could 50 command 60 command 70 command 80 command I mean, you get into the realm of command when the ball goes where you want, when you want. If I aim outside and I throw the ball outside and I and the guy's not doing a bunch of mitt moving, that's command. And command is repeatable. It's not like, you know, one pitch you throw to the mitt, the next one you you're aiming the same place and it's and you miss a high arm side. I mean, there's um it's 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 a lot more precise. You may miss, but it's you're around. You're a lot closer to your target on a consistent basis. Yeah, and then for those listening, Zach had some of the best command slash control, whatever you want to call it, of like anyone I'd ever known. I mean, I've played with some good players, and he was right up there with like people who really knew where the ball was going. And then for you to say that you'd average command at best for like the big league level is just like kind of scary. I don't think people really understand like how good people like Clayton Kershaw are. You know, he's walking like one batter per nine innings in the majors, and that's just terrifying. But, okay, so you were an organizational guy. You played at all levels in one year and every year, um, but you kind of leveled out after like your, your first couple of years in AA and then mostly in AAA. And I remember, you know, I guess it was 2013, right, where yeah. you texted me. And by that point, you and I talked – couple times a year, you know, hour, hour and a half on the phone, we would just talk baseball because we were the only two guys from UBC still playing. And it was just like, Hey, how was your season? Like what was going on? Like, what were you good at? And we both sort of like grew up in the game together. And I just remember that moment where you texted me and you're like, I don't exactly remember what the text was. You're like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to the big leagues. And it was just crazy that after all these years and getting put on the phantom DL and just being the guy that you're like comfortable in AAA, then they send you down to like high A that you finally got your shot. And I just remember going to Buffalo Wild Wings because I didn't have, um, you know, I've been a, a cord cutter for a number of years. I don't have, I don't own a TV. Well, I just now do, but, and I sat there in Buffalo Wild Wings and there you were, like you tried on, on, on screen and, um, tell us about your call up. I mean, what is it like to finally get your chance after eight, nine years in the minors and get that message and get on the plane? Uh, it was crazy. Um, it was awesome, but you're like, then all this, like this dream starts to become real and you're like, okay. And I had a cross country flight, so I had to like rush and get some stuff together and I had this five hour flight across the country to kind of go through this wave of emotions like, oh, this is everything I've worked for. And then it's like, but now it's the next step, you know, OK, you got to, you know, it's the same thing. You just got to prepare. And, you know, I just go back and forth between this like feeling of like this is everything that I've ever wanted since I've ever wanted anything to like, OK, you know, it's still baseball. You got to keep, you got to just go out, you know, you know, you know what you need to do, you know, you know, it's just like going back and forth with this wave. And then once you get out on the field and that's where the comfort is, but it's all the other stuff around it, getting in the locker room, you know, not knowing the guys, but not, you know, knowing them like every day, knowing them, 
I mean, it's cool. Like everybody's saying congratulations. I mean, they know what's going on, but it's, uh, you know, you almost want it to just be normal, but it, I mean, it was cool as whatever you could dream it to be. So like, how does that go down? So you, you, you're in triple a, you know, the game ends, what happened between <laughs> the last game ending and, and you getting that call? Like, how does it go down? The game ended. I went back. I was staying with a, a guy I went to high school with him and his wife lived in Norfolk at the time. We had a day game the next day. Um, and I think I was on like day, I, I don't know, maybe I just thrown a bullpen or something. So I go, go home and the Orioles are in Seattle. So I get back and I'm like catching the end of the Orioles game. And it, I see like just not, it wasn't a great game. And I'm like, Oh, they're probably going to need a guy. And I just go to bed like, you know, my alarm set. It was an I think we had like an 11 o'clock game or something. It was an early game. So I had to get up early and my phone's going off at like six in the morning. And it just feels like before my alarm should go off. But, I, you know, I don't, I, I'm just like trying to dead the phone. And I look at it and it was uh, the minor league coordinator who was calling me. And I was like, what the heck's going on? So I listened to his voicemail and he calls me back and he's like, hey, um, we're trying to get you on a plane to Seattle. And I, I was like, I mean, I don't even, I blacked out, uh, uh threw a bunch of stuff in a bag, like the most random things ever. Like, <laughs> like four <a> <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, I was like, I probably brushed my teeth three times. I had, you know, I was just like freaking out. It was crazy. And I had all the stuff I had to do. I had to get my, you know, get everything ready. I had to go to the, uh, the locker room. I had to get my stuff. I had to then go get, make this flight. And then I had to make a connecting flight. So I was like, you know, trying to get everything in order, but it was chaos. And, you know, I eventually got everything and ended up getting out there. Um, you know, and, you know, text my parents or called my parents and, um, text Amy. And I mean, it was, uh, it was, it was crazy. And so then you spent, uh, how many days with the big league club and tell us about the outing. Okay. So four days I pitched the second day, last day in Seattle. Um, I, you know, they called, it was like maybe the fourth inning. I can't remember what inning it was, but the starter just had a couple long innings and, you know, I knew I was kind of the long man. He was a lefty. So I was going to be, uh, it just kind of made sense that I would, I would be the guy that was up. Um, they get me up. I, I like blacked out. Like I couldn't feel anything. And I'm like such a feel guy and like nothing felt right. And I was like, man, this is crazy. People are yelling at me. Like women are yelling like F bombs. Like look at, you know, I had this high, I think I had number 64. So people are yelling like, I don't know, just anything that you could think to yell. People were yelling. And, uh, the thing that like stands out to me was I heard like women voices yelling the F bomb at me, like <laughs> dropping it on me. And I was like, this is nuts. That doesn't sound I mean, very like, Seattle. Yeah, it was, uh, well, was a bunch like, of hipsters it, who love their coffee. Like, I don't feel like that's in character for them. I think it was just something to do. Like you yell at the guy who's getting loose. Yeah. Uh, so I go in the game. Uh, the first inning was okay. I think I gave up a, or no, first, I, I don't, I can't like, if I like sat down for a second, I could tell you exactly what happened, but, um, I'm pretty sure you walked one guy. I think I, I think walked you, two guys and then you got a double play ball and I think you like a fly out. No, that, no, that is <laughs> neither of us knows what happened. All right. Tell the us. Fir- the first guy grounded out. Jesus. Remember your big league debut. God. 
but um, I mean, whatever. It was like the first inning, it was okay, and it, it eventually, like the last batter was Robert Andino, and I remember thinking like, okay, I know what I'm trying to do here, and I was like trying to throw the ball, and it just kept running, and I was like, oh shit, I better fix that, and I couldn't make an adjustment, and I was like, oh, that sucks, and then it just kind of like it was i mean it just was an outing where i didn't have feel so i gave up a couple runs i think i walked a guy a couple hits you know a couple fly balls and then i hung a breaking ball to kendrys morales he hit a double and uh i think i i don't know somewhere there may have been some fly outs before or after that and then uh ended up walking another guy they took me out of the game um Somebody came in, cleaned it up for me, and uh, that was it. And then, you know, everybody's like, oh, it's your first outing. Like, you know, you always get a mulligan, like whatever. So I'm in the outfield the next day, and I'm like just kind of messing around. And we go to Anaheim, and uh, the pitching coach is throwing knuckleballs. So I'm like <laughs> playing catch with them, just throwing knuckleballs. And um, he's like, I'm going to go get Buck. I was like, okay. So he goes to get Buck. Buck's like, oh, I'm going to get a catcher. So they get a catcher, and he's like, gets the catcher down. I'm still throwing knuckleballs, and he's like, oh, I can't tell if that's good or he's just a horseshit catcher. And I'm just kind of like, oh, man, this is weird. Like, this is more attention than I got for normal pitching. <laughs> um, and then that was kind of the end of it. Um, so the next day, there was a day game. Um, and I got, they basically like called me into the office at like 10 AM. We get to the field early and, uh, you know, I go out and play catch and then I come in and they're like, Hey, uh, Buck wants to see you. And I see Freddie Garcia there and I'm like, Oh man, I know what's going on. And, uh, they're like, Hey, we're going to designate your first assignment. Um, you know, and he brings up the knuckleball a little bit and he brings up R.A. Dickey and, but it doesn't really say much. It's kind of like cryptic talk. And then. Uh, you know, he's like, okay, well, you'll go home and, you know, we'll call you in a couple of days and let you know if you get claimed off waivers or whatever. I was like, okay. So what so, was, uh, so, so Buck Walter DFA'd you. What is, uh, explain what DFA means. Oh, man. I'm still unclear about it. <laughs> you, designated uh, for assignment means they take you off the 40 man roster, right? And yeah. There's like all sorts of, I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know like this the ultra specifics, but basically they took me off the 25 man roster and they designated me for assignment off of the 40, 40 man roster as well. Or I don't know. I dude. Yeah, I, I think that's have, right. But I don't know if you get designated off the 25 man or whatever, but they had to clear two spots cause they need a 40 man spot as well. So I was the guy who for both. Um, so yeah, I got designated for assignment. They had three days to claim me. Some team, another team had three days to claim me. Um, nobody claimed me. So uh, when they called me to tell me nobody claimed me, they said, hey, would you want to throw the knuckleball? You know, we you threw it in spring training for Phil Negro. He liked it. Um, you threw it for Buck. He said, you know, there were there was like all these things working in my favor with the knuckleball, the spring training thing, which we haven't talked about yet. Um, the, 
fact that Buck Showalter had worked with R.A. Dickey and they had liked me as a pitcher. They liked that I could feel my position and hold runners, but my stuff wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't stuff that they couldn't find somewhere else. Um, but I had some skills that would help me with the knuckleball. And they were like, what do you, you know, would you want to give it a shot? You know, this is a good time to do it. And I, you know, I had two shoulder surgeries. I was getting, I was 30 years old. I, you know, I was thinking of a way, you know, maybe I could, you know, make a, you know, something that was more short term look like, uh, maybe give myself some longevity. So I did it. Okay. So let's go back to spring training. So earlier that season, Phil Necro was always hanging around spring training, right? And you were what purported to have the best knuckleball that no one really seen, right? It's kind of how I think you explained it to me. Yeah, they Phil was there working with some guys that we there was like a knuckleball project going on. They had signed a guy from Indie Ball. They had converted Eddie Gamboa, and that had gone on, you know, from the start of I don't know if it was the start, but like maybe a week into minor league camp. So I'd come over like it was the second cuts of big league camp. So maybe like uh, basically when games started for minor league camp um so maybe like two weeks into camp uh and they said hey phil necro's here we told him that you could throw a knuckleball why don't you just go over there and throw a bullpen for him i was like all right cool you know it was like gets me out of some team defense and i get to go talk with a hall of famer sure i'll do that and i get to throw knuckleball so i went over and i was basically just throwing knuckleballs and he was you know kind of you know can you do this can you do that try and do this try and this and and we were just kind of talking about stuff and pitching and he was like yeah that's you know i think you could you know you could that could be okay i was like okay cool and they just kind of then they just kind of left it at that they said okay put that in your back pocket you know we want you to pitch you know they just put me on the 40-man roster so it wasn't like you know, hey, we're gonna throw. You're gonna throw knuckleballs now. It was like, just keep that in your back pocket, and you know, we'll address it at a later time. So, you know, I kind of forgot about it. And then, so once uh, you were, you know, your time as a conventional pitcher for the Orioles came to a close. What was next? Like, what did they tell you to do? Like, hey, go in the go in the corner and throw that weird floaty pitch. <laughs> like, how did it? How did it happen? They just said. We, you know, we want you to commit to throwing a knuckleball, and you're going to go to Double A. Phil's going to be Eddie was in Eddie Gamble was the other knuckleballer, um, and he was in Double A. So they were like, "You'll go there. You'll be with Eddie. You guys can like work on it together." And Phil's going to be there too. So that, that was kind of like, you know, go to Double A. Phil be there. Eddie will be there. Like I was comfortable there, so that was cool. Um, and that was like the beginning of the end and so eddie gamboa i've seen him pitch the dude looks like he's a tank or something he's enormous he's his knuckleball is not the same as yours correct no his is way better (laughs) (laughs) okay so you stink and he doesn't but uh his was harder though right his was more like an r.a dickey wasn't it uh yeah yeah his was harder yeah it was i I don't even know how to describe his. It's hard to like describe knuckleballs because they're all different. But yeah, he was able to 
be more of a pitcher with his than I was. And so what were you? You were more like a Tim Wakefield, like kind of softer, right? Yeah, I mean, I was... So I think I basically... Like looking back on what I did, I I took... What people liked about my knuckleball, I completely changed when I started to throw knuckleballs. So when I started to throw knuckleballs, I tried to make myself a knuckleballer. So I tried to eliminate parts of my delivery that gave me momentum and gave me any sort of rotation. And I tried to become completely linear and stay behind the baseball. And it basically took me farther away from what made me good. And where my, you know, I'd always thrown my knuckleball the way I pitched. And I then all of a sudden was changing the way I pitched. So it was, uh, I mean, my intention was good, but it wasn't, it just. Well, and what did they say to that? I mean, were they guiding you through it? Did they, like, what no. What was it like? What was the manual like for turning, turning <laughs> a conventional guy into a knuckleball? There's no manual, dude. It's the most scary thing ever. It's, uh. There, it's there's no manual. It's like if you if you can write a manual for that, you'd be you'd have a lot of money because it's really really tough. One, it's something that so few people do, um, and there's so many ways to do it, and nobody can explain. I mean, it's like the trying to tie your shoe, like to explain to somebody how to tie your shoe times like a million. It's uh, it's just a really difficult thing, and it's a lot of it has to do with feel. And when you're trying to explain to somebody how to feel a certain way, it just gets crazy. And so, is it like controllable to a point? Like, what you know, when you throw a good knuckleball, you don't know what it's going to do. Like, it's just going to make a random movement. So, how do you even control something that's ultimately? uncontrollable when you do it right uh i don't think i think the end goal i think the guys who are really good at it first can have some sort of control um but i think ultimately the goal is to throw you know a knuckleball that doesn't spin and you know when that ha- i mean it's such a good feeling when you get that when you let go of one that doesn't spin but that's only the first part of throwing knuckleballs like, like eliminating spin and then it's like it's almost like you impart a little bit of spin but not too much because that makes it somewhat controllable and i know like if you watch r.a dickey pitch or even when stephen wright would pitch and if you'd watch eddie gamboa throw a bullpen or any of these guys throw bullpens they have an idea of what it's going to do. They might not know exactly what it's doing, but they may, you know, it's going to go a certain way or it's going to go down or it's going to be, this is going to be my, you know, my strikeout one that is unpredictable or has, you know, crazy movement. I mean, there's, there's some sort of feel to it. It's, it may not be the same as like, I'm throwing the ball right into the mitt, but you have an idea. It's almost like you could make it spin a little bit so that it, doesn't like bite its way out of the strike zone almost as like throwing that kind of sort of like a your b curveball that you really need dude, to throw for a strike when you're like three one i couldn't do that but, but that's what, like, not, what like, people I'm, maybe did 
I don't know exactly what they did. Um, I just know that they are way too good at it to not have any feel for where it's going. Yeah. You know, it'd be amazing if they didn't. But yeah, they, so. I, I think they do have some feel. I never got to that, that point. I mean, I would throw maybe like two or three where I'd be like excited that they went, you know, where I thought they were going to go. But, but, you know, then they hit them. So, like, what were your results like then? I mean, you're out there in double uh, A. Those are not, those are no slouch hitters. Uh, like, how did your outings go? Um, they were long. They were, uh, it was hard to play defense behind me. Um, I think the best outing I had was five innings. And that happened once in double A and once in high A. And it was really like the more when I leaned on my fastball, my other pitches to kind of steal strikes because hitters are up there like, what the heck is going on? Like, what's this guy doing? You know, he's up there like he's lobbing knuckleballs. And like, I think part of it, there's some effect just because I was throwing the ball 65 and below. I mean, that's really slow. So that that made it. You know, if you just get up there and lob the ball, you're gonna you may have a little bit of success just because it's so different than what they usually see. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, my it was hard because you try not to gauge your results. I mean, I'd never thrown a knuckleball in a game, so I'm like going up there like kind of with an open mind, like okay. Um, but at the same time, you want to compete, and it's you know, it's a really it's a really strange place to be mentally to you know you're trying to let go of ego and all these things and you're trying to figure something out and there's no nobody really knows how to do it um and the people who do know are really they're not uh they're not right next to you all the time to help you um i don't know i mean i just i would i I would have done it differently if i could do it again but what would you have done differently I wouldn't have changed the way I threw. I would have thrown, I would have, the knuckleball would have fit into my delivery. I was changing things because I thought I had to change, not because I was being told that, you know, like it's basically like, uh, like, um, making pitches, adjusting the hitters that don't make adjustments. That's what I was doing with my mechanics. So like I was throwing, I was throwing high fastballs and thinking that they're going to catch up to them. And then I start throwing breaking balls right into their bat. You know what I mean? I mean that's just like the analogy, but like I, I wasn't, it wasn't like, okay, they're getting to that pitch. Now I need to change. I was like, okay, I'm a knuckleball guy. I need to take the rotation out of my delivery because these guys don't have much rotation in their deliveries. And Maybe if maybe I would have done that anyway, but it I did it just because I thought I had to not for it basically like I didn't have a solid base. Yeah, no, I get you. I get you. I, I feel like it's kind of like when you go to a new level that you'd never played it before 
And, you know, just like almost like when you grow up as a kid, when every year in school, your your parent, your your teachers are like, you know, that stuff's not going to fly when you go up to the fourth grade. And then you're in right. seventh grade. And you're like, well, that stuff's not going to work when you go to eighth grade. And it always works. It's the same stuff like your whole life. And then I think you right. feel like the same thing in baseball. Like you're a JV player. And then you make varsity for the first time. You try to immediately change who you are so that you can, you know, hit the ground running. You're like, oh, man, I got to be so much better now. When you don't, right. like what you did at JV that got you moved up is going to work. It might not work like quite as well, but like it'll work for the most part. I mean, that was, I mean, how was it for you like moving up in levels? I mean, we talked a lot about the differences between a, a, a single A hitter and a double A hitter, but like what did you do to adapt to all these different levels, especially as you were going back and forth? Uh, I didn't try and adapt when I was going back and forth. I was just trying to compete. Um, I think I just got better. You know, when you face better competition over and over again, like I was able, I think the things that were weaknesses of mine, uh, throwing my breaking pitches anytime, um, you know, maybe going to them early in a game just to, just so I have a feel for them. So when I get late into a game, it's there. Uh, Um, command being able to, okay, like I can't, I can't, if I'm throwing sinking fastballs and that's what I'm doing, I can't miss up with that. And if I do miss up, you know, if I'm down, 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 down all the time and I miss up, it's, it's less punishable than if I'm like, you know, down a little bit down middle of the plate and then I miss mid thigh. Um, so, you know, it just made me be better at things that I was better at and, you know, I, I adapted because I had to, you know, I maybe had to throw more change ups because hitters would sit on pitches or, you know, I had to I had to develop something to to get into left handed hitter. So I started throwing a little bit of a cutter and then you kind of like morphed into a slider um, and it, it gave me some weapons to maybe give me a pitch to put away righties with or whatever it was. I mean, it was just. Um, I was I was always evolving because certain things worked and certain things didn't, and certain things felt good depending on the time of year and what my body was doing. All right, so the knuckleball experiment, uh, how long did that last? It lasted about a year. Half of that that second half, or from May on, um, I threw it, signed back with the Orioles, never left extended, and then got released in fourteen basically when short season started so the middle of june and that yeah and that is when my phone rang so we're gonna pick up uh with part two with zach here next week be sure to tune back into dear baseball gods and hear the rest of this pretty incredible story uh from zach clark it's it's not over by a long shot so we'll catch you here next week on dear baseball gods